I know that most of us are still questioning regarding the word globalization, because when it comes to the word globalization, very often we tend to think about conflicts, wars, and most importantly, people are still questioning if the democratic system is still workable today. But meanwhile. Related topic under globalization, we also need to pay attention to another major issue that too often some of the rich countries are walking away from it, which is climate change. We know that for some countries, that climate change seems to be one of the hoaxes that people are questioning today. But meanwhile, this is a real issue that we really need to pay attention. Not only it matters to the countries in Europe. To America, but also across the nations in Asia as well. Well, that's why today we're going to talk about all those matters and how about the international changes today under climate change. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to have Mr. Paul Hagenos. Now, Paul is a Berlin writer who covers renewable energy and the climate crisis. He's the prize-winning author of four books on European affairs and was a fellow at the American Academy in Berlin. Paul, and welcome to the missing piece. Thank you very much for inviting me. Pleased to be here. <laughs> well, Paul, the pleasure is all mine. Now let's get started. Initially, when I discovered you, because this amazing article that you wrote, which is entitled "The Global South Is Done Playing Mr. Nice Guy," developing countries are finally ready to play hardball over climate reparation. Paul, again, going back to the article, we know that back in 2021, and this United Nations Climate Change Conference, and so we know as COP26 in 2021, it didn't seem as achieved a lot of goals. And also, you mentioned this in the article as well. There was a lot more projects, or a lot more. Uh, how can I say the progress on climate change was delayed. Now we know that. Very soon, we are going to see this COP twenty-seven. So, first of all, can you help us to understand the significance of United Nations Climate Change Conference at this moment? Okay. Well, I mean, the COPs are are the annual UN summit addressing the issue of of the climate crisis, and it's been going on now for twenty-seven years, and we have the twenty-seventh one this year in Egypt. And they are extraordinarily important because this is the moment when all of the countries of the world come together to hash out their their goals and aims and to make progress on curbing global warming. And、um, it took many many years for to get everybody even on the same page to admit that there is this problem and it has become ever more urgent.、Mm. And by now, almost all of the, the the members of the United Nations, 190 plus, also attend the the, the COP. And、um, you know, each year they meet again. They set、uh, different different kinds of goals. Or five years ago, they they set goals, for example, and.、Um, Then kind of come together and look, see if they've met them or not, or where where progress has been made. Each one has a slightly different focus, but this on the twenty, the number twenty seven that's coming up starting on November six, we're going to be looking at each of their countries. Uh, nationally determined goals,、mm-hmm. and you know whether they've met them over the past five years, and can they can they increase them、uh, for the next five years? So it's seen as a very very important moment in the global fight against climate change. 
Well, but Paul, again, going back to the article that you mentioned, rich countries, number one, they have the opportunities to contribute so much more regarding this climate crisis that we're facing today. But in reality, the rich countries today, they're actually walking away or perhaps I want to be careful intentionally that distance themselves from contributing to the climate change crisis at this moment. Now, help us to understand what are the possible reasons for the rich countries to keep on ignoring or walking away from this critical issue. Again, as we mentioned before, when it comes to climate change, it does not just only affect one country on the planet. It actually affects that all countries and all humanities. But why? what are the reasons that for the rich countries Treat it as a, not as the priority, but treat it as something or the second class. Help us to understand, Paul. Okay. Let me just backtrack a little bit because there are basically two pillars or have been thus far in these negotiations and two kind of target areas. Mitigation and adaptation. Hmm. Mitigation is the fight to prevent further climate change to, to, pre to prevent more greenhouse gases going to the air and to prevent the, the rising of temperatures, to mitigate uh, future uh, emissions and future the future harm to the, to the planet. So it's looking into the future and taking about taking measures now, like rolling out renewable energy, for example, shutting down gas, um, all, all kinds of different fossil fuel generation, you know, electric cars, all of this is really kind of looking towards the future. I know maybe just a couple of years in the future, maybe decades or even beyond that. That's one pillar. The second one is called adaptation. And that is aimed to help all countries, as you say, who are now affected by climate change and all are some more than others to adapt and to make adaptions so that they can better weather this crisis. Mm. You know, that can that 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 goes from, you know, changing the kind of, um, you know, agriculture that, that, that you that, that that one nation will use to, um, you know, protecting uh, coastal cities from high waters, um, etc. And so thus far, those have been the two pillars. Now, the, and there's the, the, there has also always been the issue of, of the global south and the developing countries who are not responsible either for a large share of uh, emissions today, nor were they historically. And yet they are being hit very hard in terms of climate change. Of course, the best um, examples are really this year. I mean, right now, a third of Pakistan is underwater mm. or had been because of you know torrential, you know, mega monsoons there in across africa there had been both drought and flooding and both drought and flooding um and so i mean these kind these these there has been there's the pledge you know which was part of an earlier uh, cop that the wealthier nations contribute 100 billion dollars a year to help mm. the, the, the the poorer nations and the fact of the matter is that that has not even been close to hit any one year mm. last year for example the the amount was depending on who was counting in between about 27 million and 80 million um, out of a hundred um so already there you have a discrepancy and you have um, 
an unfairness in the whole process towards towards the global south. I mean, they have every right to be extraordinarily angry that they are on the front line of suffering where they were not on the front line of making those emissions neither presently nor in the past hundred years. Mm. But now they want to bring in a third pillar, which is that of losses and damages, Mm. or you could call it reparations or compensation. They're saying that, listen, you know, our countries have been hit so hard by this. We need the money not only to mitigate in the future, not only to adapt for the present and the near future, but what about the the, the losses, the liability um, that we have suffered mm. um, and are suffering? You know, who's going to pay for that? That's not our fault. You know, we want those losses and damages paid for, and they're they're claiming that you know, as um, as as it is in 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 most legal systems, that there's a the issue of liability. You know, are the richer, wealthier nations, the global north, the developed countries, you know, are they liable for these losses and damages? Mm. And if they were, then law would have it. Then they have they have to pay for those. Um, they have to pay for those losses and damages. The north would have to pay pay compensation, and the the the, the global south. Or you could just say kind of the poor countries, because it's not simply the global south, but they want a third pillar of losses and damages, and they want a, a mechanism, a facility that would adjudicate then these cases and kind of decide, you no, know, you know, where's liability and how much is that worth, and that they would then, you know, have to um, you know, send the bill to to the richer nations in proportion of what they are responsible for this problem, both historically and, and presently. Mm. So that's the background. Um, and until now, the global north, indeed, particularly the United States and thus far most of the European Union, has said, no, they don't want to go that route. And there are two reasons for this. One, I think, actually makes some sense. And that is that, listen, um, you know, let's put this money towards mitigation. Mm. So, our, so in, you know, in the future, five, 10 years, or even 50 years down the line, we or our children or our grandchildren are going to have a planet that they can, they can live on. And, you know, let's adapt. The other thing was, of course, adaption. You know, let's, you know, we have to change things because we have to be ready for what's coming. And that were we to take money away from those two priorities, that, that they would suffer and simply the whole problem would get a whole lot worse. Now, that's one reason. That's um, what the U.S. uh, climate envoy John Kerry, that's basically Mm. his argument, which one can follow. Of course, what they don't say is that with their liability, the United States and Europe would have to pay a lot of money. Historically, the United States alone is responsible for 25 percent of all greenhouse gases, Europe 22 percent. And currently, um, the numbers are only slightly different. Um, I believe that China is the number one uh, emitter of uh, greenhouse gases, Mm. followed by the United States and and Europe. Mm. So we have this situation um, that um, would mean that, you know, there would be a huge issue of, you know, how big would these compensation would be and, you know, who would pay it and and why. And as you can imagine, um, the the richer countries are, are... unhappy about this and, and you know, don't want to see it go that way. Mm. Paul, again, I'm very glad that you used the country, of course, that you directly mentioned the country of Pakistan. And we know that not too long ago, this devastation cost, again, according to the number that you wrote, 
more than a thousand people dead and eight million displaced that 1.7 million homes destroyed you know to be honest when i was just reading those numbers and again just trying to understand it's not just about what happened to pakistan but also it's about the devastation and the impact on those people again so that's why i think in one hand in reality people have to wake up and to understand that climate crisis it's actually taking place in every single corner of our lives but on this on the other hand paul i want to ask another direct question do you think today when we come to climate change or when it comes to climate change crisis are the countries particularly the rich countries politicizing this issue so in other words are they actually looking at it as a real deal or as a real crisis that really need to put more effort or would, at least we can contribute some or they're using this as a political soundbite or as a political negotiation in order to get something else behind the doors. What's your take on that? I, I mean, it's, it's of course you can't you know put all all countries you know, together in 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 this, and you know, even within one country like the United States, you have you know some political some administrations that you know think it's you know not worth uh, being involved in at all and don't really believe in um, the evidence that that we, that the that, that the scientists have have accumulated over the years that show you know un, with, without any any. Um, any doubt above any suspicion that there is climate change happening and that there is a climate crisis and climate breakdown. Um, I mean, I would say that um, that President Biden and the Democrats, you know, do take this issue seriously and have passed legislation that puts hundreds of billions of dollars toward uh, different mitigation and adaptation um mechanisms and, and strategies and the european union embarked on uh, the european green deal many years ago i mean you could say it really even started 20 years ago and has long taken it very seriously you know all of europe right now is in the midst of a transition to renewable energies germany uh, runs on 50 percent of its electricity comes from renewable sources mm. uh, some countries like you know denmark and iceland and and, and norway and, and portugal even even more than that so I, I think that they are, have now, and particularly as the evidence mounts, like the extreme weather, the, the warming uh, and, and rising of, of the seas, the melting of the glaciers, you know, this impact on, on biodiversity, uh, the, the out-of-control forest fires from the United States to Australia in Siberia as well, et cetera. I mean, I think now there is overwhelming acceptance on the majority of states and the majority of people that this is a major problem. And opinion polls also show that everywhere in the world, it has kind of climbed up as a um, an issue to be taken seriously and one that voters are concerned about. So I think that that's, that's a huge step forward. Um, but um, significant action then has to follow. And this is not what has, has not what happened. Um, these different countries have not, in fact, almost all of the countries haven't lived up to the targets and the goals that they set at the different uh, COPs um, over the years. And so that's why this one in Egypt is so important. It's to get everybody back on track and to up the, the their targets uh, in order that we can prevent global warming from uh, exceeding two degrees um, by by two by um, twenty one hundred.
Paul, you know, just now you mentioned one of the critical countries that actually making a lot of noises lately, which is China. Now, looking this, looking at this country, there are 1.4 billion people living in this country, and we know that when we talk about climate change or when we talk about the climate crisis, that China, especially under the current government, has been very vocal and supportive in moving along the project, and hopefully, not only by political.、Uh, But also by economic matters that contribute to a, a lot. But meanwhile, when we look at China today, that again, comparatively speaking, you know, population-wise, America, Denmark, and Germany. So my next question is: for the country as China is so large and this again on this unstoppable track for this economic growth, how could we、uh, hold China accountable? Or so, in other words, how do we know that China is willing, even though, as you mentioned, Paul, that for the gas emission is right up, right after the,、uh, America or you know、uh, other countries? But again, how do we know that China is committed seriously in in battling against the climate crisis? How can we do that? Because we're looking at different、uh, political atmosphere, looking at different economic agenda. So, what is your take on that? I mean, I think there's really only one way, and that is to convince China that it is that it is a serious problem and threat to China,、mm. uh, which it is.、Um, you know, there's there's nothing you can really do to make other countries take、um, to take action if they themselves are not not convinced that convinced of it themselves. So, I mean, it's really up to China to take a look at the problem and to understand what it is and how dangerous it is and how much it threatens. Their own country and its its stability,、um, the health of its people, and in the end,、um, you know, its its political its political elite as well.、Um, I mean, they're just simply not serving their people in a responsible and、uh, respectable way if they ignore this very you know egregious threat.、Um, but there's nothing that can be done to make a country participate. It's really up to them. And you know they have to be convinced of its necessity and urgency.、Mm. Paul, I want to go back to the article again. This is something that you wrote is quite interesting, and it says, despite the moral imperative, the global South hopes to actually institutionalize another basket of funding is probably doomed, even if it makes its way onto the agenda. And in 2009, the well-heeled countries committed to mobilize 100 million per year for developing countries to pay for climate measures. Now, given the fact that you mentioned today or mentioned briefly that countries such as Pakistan, such as Nepal, I mean, though, number one, those countries are still facing the climate crisis, and number two, they're still living in this economic instability. But meanwhile, if the rich countries are Not really committed as much as they should. How about those vulnerable countries? Do they have any alternatives, or should they look for any other ways to prevent something as flooding what happened in Pakistan? So, in other words, if put in a simple way, if nobody helps, or if everyone it's not willing to help or contribute so much, what could be the alternative for the vulnerable states? I mean, the first is that the that the wealthier countries、um, pony up and pay the well, what 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 they said that they were going to, and probably more as well. 
I mean, I don't think that losses and damages is going to be established as a third pillar. But at these, as these um, these negotiations go, there's often some horse trading going on, and you may, they might be able to get something else from it. Um, that won't that that we can hope. And I mean, outside of that, I mean, I think that these countries have to take seriously themselves. And I mean, there's there, there have long been monsoons, um, but the way that um, the um, agriculture and the way that uh, rivers have all been changed and that they no longer absorb water the way they used to, you know, all the, the way cities are built, et cetera. I mean, this all has to change. This is all really kind of in the, in the, more the in adoption, but these countries have made huge mistakes themselves mm. and you know they have to they can they can do a lot to get get back on track themselves it's not just up to someone else to pay for it and they have to come out and um you know realize what kind of adaption measures are are necessary and and take them i mean they have not been any better than well i mean they you could you could also argue that you know those structures were handed down from colonialism mm. um so go back again you know the circle comes around but whatever the case um, and they can take action themselves, uh, regardless of the amount of money that, um, that that the richer nations want to want to help them with. So, in other words, it's not just about dependency. It's actually it's more about collective efforts and i think that really could make a significant difference paul i know you're very busy i got two more questions before letting you go i know again as we mentioned in the intro you've written four different books on european affairs and i want to uh, uh, get your uh, reaction on what's happening in the united kingdom lately that we know that this country lately i know you're you're laughing and i i feel the same way but but anyway um, this country just uh, elected a brand new prime minister, but given the fact that the predecessor only lasted around 44 days, but also last year, COP was held in United Kingdom as well. So I want to get your reaction is based on the current or the newly elected prime minister for the country, how much change can we expect not only for the uh, uh, economic perspective, but also for the global efforts from contribution from this country. What do you think? I don't really expect any more, or maybe even less than last time when they hosted it. You would think they would have been most generous. Um, I think also that the UK is really, you know, right now, you know, terribly focused on its own problems, all of which are a result of Brexit. I mean, this is the source of all of their problems um, at the moment, and of the different prime ministers, and of this prime minister, and um, those those that follow. I mean, it's all the fallout of Brexit, mm. which has been every bit as bad as it's as, as the critics of Brexit uh, predicted. Um, I don't see any short-term solution for the UK, and unfortunately, until they get their own matters straightened out, they're, they're going to be punching below their weight at in international negotiations and on a, a, a geopolitical global level. So, I'm not really expecting much at all. Hmm. Well, Paul, I want to wrap up our conversation again, going back to the European affairs. Now, when we look at the countries, not only that in Europe, but also across the continent, 
because of the war in Ukraine, and not, not only that really woke up the entire international community to understand this energy crisis that we're facing in the results of the war, but on the other hand, it provides a mechanism for all the countries to be united in order to uh, pro provide or come up with much better or feasible solutions so in order to avoid major disasters. Now, from your perspective, at this moment, despite the fact the war is still taking place, in your opinion, how much more can we expect from the European countries that really bring this joint effort in order to avoid much greater disaster in er energy shortage? So can you help us to understand how significant is the impact today, even though it doesn't look like uh, a, a Russia is going to win in the end? Europe has been thrown into an unprecedented energy crisis, mm. which, if we get a cold winter, could be very threatening to populations, to industry, to, um, to the economies. Um, it's going to be extreme. It is extremely rough right now. Mm. Uh, energy prices have skyrocketed and they will continue to go up um, over the course of, of the winter. Um, President uh, Vladimir Putin of Russia has put Western Europe into a very bad place. It isn't in a corner. Um, I think, however, that the policies that the Europeans have agreed upon at the EU level, but also at the national level, um, are going to fare them very well. Mm. Um, I think that we're going to make it through the winter. Um, it's going to mean conservation. I haven't turned on the heat yet here. Mm. You know, in my office, everybody's wearing two sweaters and a scarf. Um, you know, it's just kind of almost like an informal competition, you know, who can hold out longer, mm. but we have to conserve energy and ultimately then kind of looking beyond this winter or beyond this crisis with Ukraine. And you're right. I mean, R Russia is not going to win. Ukraine will win. Mm. And Ukraine will be built up to be maybe even a better country than it was before. Mm. Um, but um, there's also right now, I mean, as part of the whole energy crisis, there's a huge, there's a massive drive to, um, tr uh, to transition to renewable energy, which had been going on now for 20 years, but now it's really been, been shifted into fifth gear. And um, right now, I mean, there's a solar boom going on in Germany. I mean, across the country, it's almost, it's impossible. I sure there's a waiting list of nine months to get solar panels put up on your, on, on your roof. Um, all the, the heat pumps, which is an electrical form of geothermal energy, very, very energy efficient, you know, is also booming. And, um, the European Union has put in a, a special package to, you know, increase conservation, increase energy efficiency, to insulate houses, to, 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 to roll out renewable energy um, to, to wind down uh, fossil fuels and you know once this happens it's going to put Europe in a much stronger position than any other place in the world mm. uh, it'll be more energy efficient um, it will have you know renewable energy wind and solar is the cheapest out there by a long shot um, you know if we're using less energy and the energy that we're using is the cheapest and if it comes from the wind and the and the sun you know ultimately then europe is going to emerge stronger but we'll really have to see uh, what's going to happen over the next two years and um you know i can't make any predictions but i mean a lot of the changes 
that were made necessary by the climate crisis are now being taken because of the Ukraine crisis. Mm. I mean, that's why this is happening. That's why we're seeing so much energy um, devoted to it, because it's a problem right now in front of our face, this energy crisis, whereas the climate crisis is always something kind of far off or somewhere else or, you know, impossible to tackle, you know, all at once at one time. But um, for the first time ever, you know, security policy and climate policy are one. Mm. That's, that, that's, that's, re- that's really quite remarkable how this happened. Basically, the day that, that, that Russia invaded Ukraine, and it changed everything. And so, I mean, if there's any grounds to kind of, you know, look you know, look on, look on, on, on the events today, which can all look pretty grim, but with, um, you know, with some hope or, um, you know, enthusiasm, I mean, it's that, I think we've been come out stronger. Mm -hmm. Um, and by that, I also mean the Ukraine. And, um, I think that, that that Russia has made a huge mistake, which is going to cost them for decades to come and their reliance on fossil fuels for their economy, um, both as in terms of export and using at home, you know, is simply going to become less and less, um, valuable to them. And, um, I think they've done them. I think, I think Putin has done Russia a terrible disservice. Um, that's the way it is. Well, Paul, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that the entire international community is also praying for the same thing, that not only Ukraine is going to win the war, but also throughout the war and at the end of the uh, conflict, that Ukraine is going to become much stronger than ever. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Mr. Paul Hoganos. And Paul, it's a Berlin writer who covers renewable energy and the climate crisis. He's the prize-winning author of four books on European affairs and was a fellow at the American Academy in Berlin. Paul, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and we'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to discuss not only about renewable energy and climate crisis, but also around the matters within the international community. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed the discussion.